Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The pioneering editor of Vogue magazine, Andre Leon Talley, died earlier this year. Yesterday would have been his 74th birthday. Talley was the first black person to hold his position. He was also an intellectual who brought a scholarly perspective and depth to his work. Gail O'Neill, the Atlanta-based writer and editor at Arts ATL, had known Tally during her earlier career as a high-fashion model. She joined me for an appreciation of his work after he passed away, and we listened back to that discussion, where Gail explains the expansive contributions Andre Leon Tally made to fashion, media, culture, and history. Plus, speaking of music, our series of local musicians in their own words features Leif Westermark of the band Rosser first. A new public art festival is kicking off in Atlanta this month, the Off the Tracks Mural Festival enlivens public spaces around Atlanta by having local artists beautify our city's neighborhoods. This year, they are focusing on the Kirkwood neighborhood with live painting on Saturday, October 22nd. Off the Tracks co-founders, Adam Stevenson and Carrie Patchett, join me now via Zoom, along with muralist Andrew Blooms, welcome to City Lights. Adam and Carrie, please tell us the story of how you two came together to create the Off the Tracks Festival. We first met on a really big art project in Atlantic Station. And uh, he made a really deep impression on me because the first thing I remember him saying when he came into the art studio we uh, met in, was uh, art or die, right, guys? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yep. (laughs) And then we worked again on another project that uh, was out of state. So it was 
a lot of complicated stuff, moving a ton of stuff from a studio to a different state. And uh, the main things I took from it was we remained kind. I feel like handled things as professionally as we could. And we're like, okay, what else can we do if like this is not an ideal project? What would be an ideal project? What inspired the idea for a mural festival? Oh, we love them. <laughs> They're a whole lot of fun. It's a great way to get a lot of artists networking with each other, volunteers coming out that want to support the arts but don't know how. You know, the neighborhood gets really excited because they're like, what are you making? How does this even happen? The whole process of creating a giant mural is kind of like magic. And like when we can have like a bunch of people showing up and within a week come through a ton of paint that's even like mostly donated from previous projects. The hard part for Adam and I is not the creation of the paintings. That is a very difficult process, but we're used to doing that. We've been doing art for probably 30 years each since you can hold a pencil. So the hard part is connecting with the communities, getting the right artists on the right walls, making sure artists are taken care of, making sure volunteers are taken care of, and, you know, creating a space where everyone can come together and be amazed by the magic of taking a concept from somebody's brain that doesn't exist anywhere in anybody else's universe and putting it big on a wall. And like, you know, I think it's worth all the work. It makes such impact on people. Adam, I was struck by something I read in your background that speaks to the beauty of the democratization of art, that you said even as a trained artist, you sometimes felt uncomfortable by the formality and sort of expense of what's on the wall in traditional galleries. Would you talk a bit about the need for public art and why you enjoy beautifying spaces in areas where people need them and may not have access to beauty in the way others do? So when I first moved to Atlanta, I was coming from Decatur, Alabama, and in Decatur, Alabama, there's not many art outings whatsoever. There's one gallery that I'm aware of, well, they are pushing to grow, and I've, I've been a part of that, but coming to Atlanta, I was exposed to graffiti, and this stuff absolutely blew my mind and sent my imagination reeling, and I, I was just seeing forms that I'd never seen before, colors I'd never seen before, compositions I've never seen before. And over time, I started to realize that the influence that this stuff had on me that I wouldn't have had access to otherwise, and the impact that it had on my life and the drive that it gave me to create better art and more art. When I first came here, coming to galleries just seemed a little bit inaccessible. I didn't, I was of the mind that, and this is when I was in my 20s, this is the early 2000s, right? I was of the mind that but you kind of had to be rich, have money. And it was it was a bit ignorant, but you know, there's a lot of people that are ignorant about the arts. And I think that public facing arts made for everyone kind of 
demystifies art and it, it brings it to a level where everyone can understand and everyone can have the impact and, and feel how it changes you. Mm, beautiful. Where in Kirkwood will the artists be painting and beautifying on October 22nd? The downtown Kirkwood Business District. So if you Google Kirkwood on a map and zoom in a little bit, you've got on uh, Hosea L. Williams Drive and between uh, Kirkwood Road over where the library is and then down through to Empire Arts Gallery. So like those are the two businesses that will be between there. We're definitely painting the Valero gas station. That's really exciting. That's the biggest wall we got. That's the most public wall. We've got two artists that are going to be there. Our secretary, Drew Borders, is keeping way better track of exactly which person is on which wall. So I'm just going to stick with that one. But if you come down that day and walk through, you're going to see us painting all the way down to Soul Shine. That's going to be really fun. That's the daycare. So there's a retaining wall out front of the daycare and like the daycare itself, it's two big houses next to each other. And um, I really, really love what they're doing. It's called Soul Shine and their mantra is spread goodness. And so we're going to have uh, our equity director, Georgia Faker III, who has a really great, really unique lettering style that's like really signature that you see all over Atlanta. And uh, he's like, oh yeah, I can absolutely help with that wall. <laughs> so that one's going to be really exciting. Definitely come down and say hello to George at Soulshine. And there's going to be restaurants that you can go visit and have a lovely cocktail that will help support us. But yeah, it's just going to be walk through Kirkwood, grab a delicious meal, grab a delicious beverage from your favorite restaurant, and come hang out with the artists. We'll be there all day. Adam, how were the artists selected? We had a board of six of us, plus some guest curators. And we kind of all just started saying artists that we knew were already awesome in Atlanta that have already made a big impact. And a lot of us felt that it was important to bring new names into the mix people that are on the come up or people that haven't had much, ex much exposure that I've met and other people I've met through other mural festivals. And we just kind of voted. We went through the list and made sure we had a, a solid list. And it was unfortunate that we had to cut some people out because there's so many talented people in Atlanta. Hopefully we can get them on a wall at some point in the near future. <laughs> Were the artists given parameters on what they can or cannot paint? We tried to keep it open. We want it to be as free of an expression as possible. But it is public art. We want people to not pay anything super offensive or risky at, at this point in time. You know, maybe in the future we can get a, get a little risky with it, but we're trying to keep things fun and the provocation levels sort of low. But free expression is very important to me, and I wanted that to be a part of this festival as well. Andrew, you are a multifaceted artist in various mediums, a prolific painter as well as a music producer. You are a tattoo artist and you create custom clothing designs. I love those roller skates I saw. I wish I could roller skate when I looked at those. <laughs> Whoa. Me too. <laughs> How would you describe your artistic style and the subjects you enjoy painting? 
Okay, so my art is really inspired by Asian art, really specifically Japanese art. And I discovered this in college. I went to um, University of Georgia, go dogs. <laughs> but I went to our library and they had a book that was called uh, Tattoos of the Floating World. And this book tied Japanese woodblock printing, which is, you know, the great wave print that we all are familiar with. That's an example of um, Japanese woodblock printing. And wave as an ocean wave. Yes. Um, this is from the 16th century. Edo period of Japan. And this is when the tattooing also really came to light as well. So that just hooked me right there. And since then, I remember even in college, I would practice drawing like tattoos from like Japanese tattoos on my friends. And I just always loved it and would always return to it, that style of art. So it's been something I've just really loved for a little while now. And of course, there is an emphasis on the natural world within Japanese art. And a, a lot of your work involves beautiful flowers. I saw that you have events, classes you offer on painting chrysanthemums or peonies. And there seems to be a thread throughout your events of good coffee and pastries. This is quite a, a combination. <laughs> Fine art, good coffee, and pastries. What could go wrong? What could go wrong, really? I come from working in coffee shops. Those are my really first you know, part-time jobs, trying to be an artist and trying to... And that's a great uh, job to work too because it, it puts you in contact with a lot of creative people. But... I've got to see coffee kind of evolve into something that's really thought through now. Like people are really treating coffee beverages kind of like you would a cocktail. And so what I think we're kind of in now or the opportunity we are in now is to look at beverage and food as an art form, even in itself. So I'm even seeing friends who are coming into their own identity as creatives as drink makers you know and so the the point of the class is really to yeah teach how to do art but also create a an event that can include kind of things that kind of break the box or the mold of what we know is is I guess the status quo you know and really put thought into every aspect of an experience and so I have the drinks that are themed with the classes. So last time my friend Arius made some chrysanthemum iced tea. Oh. And it's just dope. And we <laughs> learned how to draw chrysanthemum. So it's just all, all thought through, you know. Well, I like the way you're also engaging all of the senses. In addition to the visual, you've got scent or fragrance and taste and Certainly with the aroma of coffee, oh, that's a winning combination. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with the artists Adam Stevenson, Carrie Patchett, and Andrew Blooms. We've been talking about Off the Tracks, 
the upcoming mural festival in the Kirkwood neighborhood. Adam and Carrie, some of the work will begin as early as October 15th, but I read that on the 22nd, all of the artists will show up to participate together. Would you tell us about the events taking place on the 22nd? It's pretty straightforward. Like, the point is to have it really accessible for people to walk through that live here or take Varna to the neighborhood. And, like, it's a really nice business district that has something for everybody. There's a vegan pastry place. There's Evergreen Butcher and Baker that has, like, really fabulous Oh my gosh, they're the best butcher. I think that's in Atlanta. So we're going to highlight the businesses that are down there in uh, Atlanta already, as well as just, you know, enjoy being with us. Like people don't always interact directly with artists, especially when they're creating work. Like there's a whole lot of work that happens beforehand, all the prep work that we do that, you know, it takes months, months and months to do not just design work, but to get everybody together to paint on the same day. So we want everybody to experience that because artists get to experience the creation of artwork all the time. So if we're somewhere that can handle people coming and hanging out without you having to pay a ticket, like at an art gallery, there's a lot of ways that art can happen that it's not as accessible. With this, you could just show up on that day. It'll be a little bit busier day for business district it'll be we're not closing down any streets but we are going to have a kombucha tent at the Valero. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we're just going to highlight what we have. Andrew does it change the nature of what you create when you have an audience? Sometimes it is hard to balance that but I find that if you just more true to yourself more true to what you truly enjoy I think that comes across so I don't think you got to worry too much as long as you're um, following you, you know. Adam, on the Off the Tracks website and Instagram account, a description outlines the scope of your nonprofit murals, installations, and what you call tactical urbanism projects. What is tactical urbanism? So my focus is actually more on the mural side of things. Gary is uh, the one that's more interested and focused on the tactical urbanism. So I'll hand it back over to her. So tactical urbanism, that has been a buzzword for a little bit now. And it's going to continue to be a buzzword for a while because it is vague on purpose, which allows a neighborhood to look at, okay, what is happening here? How can we make it better for the people that live here? And it's going to look different for every single neighborhood. So it allows people like me and Adam and other artists and all of our civic friends with City of Atlanta to work with an organization like us to do something like repaint the crosswalks downtown. You know, our main goal is, you know, to protect the public and to protect and serve and to create safe, beautiful public spaces. We have to do safety first. And it is safe and walkable in downtown Kirkwood right now, but there have been some traffic issues and we even, there's been a huge survey and I've got a whole map if you um, want to do that research into the uh, NPUO and 
what's happening there and uh, our neighborhood organizations. So there's a communication link now and we can ask the neighborhood, how can you feel safer? And then we can tie that in with beautification. So I, with my time at SCAD, I really got obsessed with Bauhaus um, and it's form and function combined. And you get really, really beautiful things that are incredibly functional. And tactical urbanism is a way to scratch that itch in my brain because um, artwork is going to move humans around. And so if we're going to have people come visit an area, we wanna make sure that there's places that they can feel safe. And I think tactical urbanism is a really beautiful way to do that. And that's happening all over Atlanta right now. Definitely get involved wherever you're living. There's people all over the place <laughs> doing really interesting, really creative civic improvement. And Atlanta is teeming with very talented, very educated, very skilled artists. And uh, Atlanta's kind of updating its systems in a way that it is easier for us to communicate with each other. And I saw a percentage of income from the festival and its fundraising will go directly to public transportation funding in the festival's neighborhood. One of the things we were discussing with Katie Kissel of Kirkwood Neighbors Organization is having a safe walking and safe public transportation use campaign, doing things like that. Adam, I know you have a story about how painting a mural helped you feel more connected to your hometown community in Decatur, Alabama. Would you share it? Sure. Uh, and that story actually starts here in Atlanta. I had been living in Mexico for a little while and I had just come back for uh, a friend's wedding and to renew my visa because I was planning on living in Mexico for a while. I was trying to learn Spanish. But while I was back, Monica from Living Walls invited me to come prime a wall for a new mural that was going to be in uh, downtown Decatur. And while I was priming it, I met the artist and her name is Amy Cambrone. Shout out to Amy Cambrone. And we, we just clicked. Something about our personalities went well together. And she invited me to help her paint that entire mural. And I did what I could. I, I was couch surfing at the time. It was a little crazy. And I helped her for about three months work on this mural. But during the process of this mural, I saw that she was painting a portrait of her mother. And that moved me deeply uh, because there's just not that much art out there that's public. That's also such a personal expression. And so my sister in 2006 passed away. She was killed in a car accident. It devastated our family. Uh, but I always had this photo of her uh, when she was in my mom's wedding to my dad. And it was just a beautiful photo. She's holding a, a flower in her hand, a single daisy with her eyes closed. And I, I wanted to make some kind of piece of art of it basically since she passed away. And after working on this mural with Yami, I started sketching a design out. And I came up with an illustration of my sister that I wanted to put somewhere. So I just made a random post on Facebook addressing the people in my hometown because I'd noticed that they'd built a college of art there and that there was some downtown development going on. So I was like, does anybody know anybody in downtown who would be interested in working together on some public art? 
And within a couple of days, somebody connected me to the people that were pretty much in charge of all of that, uh, which is crazy. I guess that's something that can happen in a small city. And I met with them, showed them my design, proposed a budget, and they were really receptive to it. They actually offered me more money than I was asking, which was uh, crazy to me as well. <laughs> Maybe I was under budgeting my work. <laughs> I'm not sure, but they gave me free reign. I, I got to find the wall, talk to the business owners. We, we got everything handled that way. And suddenly I found myself being not just accepted by the institution of my hometown, but enthusiastically accepted and promoted by the institution of my hometown, which is my experience in my hometown was was not like that at all. You know, I, I felt I was pretty much on the outside of the institutions the entire time. So it blew my mind. And that experience has kind of set me on this path to further promote public arts and try to bring opportunities to other people to express themselves personally. I don't know. It, it changed my life. Oh, beautiful story. You've also talked about the importance of dreams in your work. What's the story behind the tiger mural at Pullman Yard? Okay. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been trying to figure out how to express my dreams pretty much my whole life, and I'm, I'm starting to get better at it, but there's still a lot of work to do. But the tiger is one of them. So for years now, I think it's been about a decade, I would just be having a dream. It would be a normal dream. And off in the distance, I'll see this tiger stalking me. And it scares me every single time. And even in the dreams, I'm like, oh, it's that dream tiger. It's that guy again. And I run away from the dream. And I've had various experiences with this tiger. And for a while, I caged him. And I'm still not exactly sure what my relationship to that tiger is. Maybe it's this wild part of myself that can pose a threat to myself. I'm not sure. I've, I've had a bit of a crazy life. I've taken some, some risks. And maybe that tiger is, is part of that. But... I tried to paint this image. It's an image of some hands calming this tiger and holding it around its mouth. And the tiger is relaxing, calming down. That's me trying to make peace with that. And more specifically, over the past couple of years, my, my father passed away in November of 2020. And it's just been an emotional roller coaster since then. And this tiger, a lot of my murals are expressions of me trying to accomplish something in my own life, my own emotions. It's me addressing something deeply within myself and trying to take that public, hoping that the public can perceive the energy that I'm trying to represent. And in this case, it was coming to terms with your, your more darker emotions, because I know a lot of people are, are kind of still struggling with that after the pandemic. We, we act like we've all moved on, but everyone's pretty deeply affected. And I was hoping this this mural could address that in some way. And maybe not directly, but if someone could give it a little bit further thought, then maybe it would address that. Artists Adam Stevenson and Carrie Patchett, co-founders of the new mural festival, Off the Tracks. They were joined by muralist Andrew Blooms. The festival takes place in Kirkwood this Saturday, October 22nd, and more information is on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Fashion editor and icon Andre Leontali 
would have been 74 yesterday. In a moment, we'll listen back to my January conversation about Tally with writer Gail O'Neill from Arts ATL. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Great to have you along. The pioneering editor of Vogue magazine, Andre Leontali, died earlier this year. Yesterday would have been his 74th birthday. Tally was a trailblazer as the first black person to hold his position. An intellectual who brought a scholarly perspective and depth to his work. Gail O'Neill, the Atlanta-based writer and editor at Arts ATL, had known Tally during her earlier career as a high fashion model. She joined me for an appreciation of his work after he passed away, discussing the expansive contributions Andre Leontali made to fashion, media, culture, and history. We'll listen back to that conversation now. Gail first explained how she and the fashion icon crossed paths while working in the industry. He started his career in fashion in New York in 1983, and I started modeling in 1985. So I would see him in the front row at collections in Paris and Milan and New York when I was walking the runways for designers. And Andre was the one, you know how in the black church, Lois, people are not quiet about their response to what they're seeing and hearing. I love it. There's exuberance and there's applause. That is not really permitted uh, on the catwalks in, in, in all of these fashion capitals. It's considered inappropriate. But Andre didn't mind being inappropriate. If he saw something he loved, he would explode. And so you were always aware of his presence in the room. However, I was very, very shy. I'm still, I'm still a fundamentally shy person. And so he and I never clicked on a personal level. I wasn't hanging out at night. I wasn't going to La Coupole in Paris or Studio 54. Well, it was post-Studio 54 era. But Andre had a full social life and a very big social circle that I was not a part of. I was just working by day going to bed at night, waking up early and starting over the next day. So we overlapped. I was well aware of his reputation. We knew one another, but I I couldn't describe us as intimates or close friends. I understand you did have a special lunch with him in Atlanta. Yes, he came to Atlanta about five years ago. I would say Paula Wallace, the president of SCAD, was responsible for bringing Andre into Georgia, first at Savannah, the Savannah College of Art and Design, as a curator, as a mentor, as somebody to give master classes to her students. And then he made his way to Atlanta through SCAD Fash when his little black dress exhibition came to the museum, as well as the first post um, after Oscar de la Renta passed away. Andre was the first person to organize a show around Oscar's collections. And this was all because of 
Paula Wallace's seeing his scholarly input and what he had to contribute and having him come to Atlanta. So I'm sure he was in town for one of those SCAD related events. And I have girlfriends who are in the ladies who lunch bunch, again, not my crew, but <laughs> they were kind enough to invite me. And we all sat with Andre, a group of maybe five women and Andre, and he just delighted us. You know, he always was holding court. Andre Leontali said, I don't live for fashion. I live for beauty and style. Fashion is fleeting. Style remains. But his indelible mark was in the area of fashion. What made his contributions extraordinary? I think because he felt it on a cellular level, Lois. Fashion to Andre was, he described it as a sanctuary. Andre was born in Durham, North Carolina during the Jim Crow era. And it was a very harsh contrast to the loving home environment he had with his grandmother who raised him in Durham. So he describes being a teenager going to the campus of Duke University where his grandmother worked as a washerwoman. And he describes walking to the campus once a month to buy his Vogue magazine from the magazine shop and having stones thrown at him. And Andre was very gentle as a young boy. He wasn't one to fight. And of course it could have cost him his life back in that time and that era. So he was not one to stand up for himself and fight, but just to quietly go about what he wanted to do. And all he wanted was to seek beauty. And he described fashion and the pages of Vogue as a sanctuary. He even described fashion shows, attending fashion shows. He likened it to going to church every Sunday with his grandmother, again, describing it as a sanctuary. So fashion for Andre was an escape from the harsher realities of the American South in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, a place where there was refinement, elegance, there were manners, there were rules of comportment, and everyone followed those rules. And it was extremely aspirational. It lit up his imagination. Yeah. Yeah, and it reveals so much about him, seeing the connections he made as young as a 12-year-old boy in reading Vogue and as an escape from reality. You mentioned those connections to culture and poetry, music, beauty, and style for others who might simply have seen fashion on the pages of Vogue. I love that you brought up his grandmother and his growing up in Durham during a very difficult time for African-Americans. He described his grandmother as aristocratic in the highest sense of the word and indeed attending church with her on Sundays provided his first encounter with what seemed to him a fashion show, ladies wearing their best dresses and hats, men in suits and ties. What do you think of his assimilating those impressions as a young boy? I think it's important for your young listeners to understand the context of the time, Lois. In Durham, North Carolina in the 1950s, it would be considered offensive among some white people to see a black person dressed in their Sunday best. There was a hierarchy that told black people you had to be inferior to your white counterparts in dress, in comportment, in intellect, 
and aspirations in every aspect of your life. There was just a, a lid that was kept on you. And so for Andre to understand that social hierarchy and then see black people defying it, his grandmother, the church deaconesses, the deacons of the church, defying those strictures that were trying to tell us who we were, but that he knew not to be true, to see them defied was a lesson for him in what was possible. And I think the meta picture of that was Vogue. On the one hand, you know, it's, it's kind of another universe, it's not really realistic, but it, it just demonstrates what is possible. And I think that was Andre's biggest message to students at SCAD. He just wanted them to consider what if, and then let them fill in that blank. And thank God he had his grandmother, Lois, because you know, you might have a sensitive child, but if there aren't adults or caretakers there to meet that child where their sensitivity within that vibrational range, it can just be overrun or it can be put down. Andre's mother, for example, never understood him. No. She was embarrassed by his exuberance and by his, his stylistic expression, whereas his grandmother would say, leave that boy alone. He's fine. Everything Andre did in his grandmother's eyes was fine, was perfect. Indeed, to that point, the designer Mark Jacobs described Andre as an operatic figure. Would you talk about how he presented himself to the world? It was a 360 degree production, Lois. So I think operatic is the <laughs> perfect term. I don't love opera. My little friend Layla Felder will kill me for saying that. She keeps trying to get me on the opera bandwagon, but she's always coaching me on how opera is a combination of fashion, production, lighting, sound, all, everything. And that was Andre. Andre didn't just assemble an outfit. There was some historical context that he was referencing. There was conjugation between the socks and the boater hat and the, the waistcoat that he was wearing or the caftan later in life. There was always a story, much the way that an editor puts together a story for the pages of a magazine layout that Andre would convey. And he would take hours putting these stories together. He describes going to Deanna Vreeland later in her life when she was losing her eyesight, and it would take him hours to assemble his outfit, Lois. Mm. And Deanna couldn't see, but he could see and he could feel, and it was important to him to present himself, almost like someone would in the court of Louis says at Versailles. That was Andre. Yeah. In fact, his first break was an unpaid apprenticeship to Deanna Vreeland at the Costume Institute of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She had been editor-in-chief at Vogue. Mrs. Vreeland reminded him of his grandmother. He felt her unconditional love. What did he learn from Diana Vreeland? I think he learned how to be free, Lois. I think he learned that it was okay to dream and to dream big. I think he learned it was okay to be over the top to be the loudest one in the room, to command attention, and to be worthy of that attention once you commanded it. So you don't just come in, you know, looking like firecrackers in the 4th of July, but you have something to say. Andre took great pride in the research he would do before conducting an interview, before showing up at the Costume Institute, for example, and assembling, I think it was a, a metal bikini that Lana Turner wore in, in The Prodigal. I have yes. to go watch that movie. Well, Andre was given a box of basically metal pieces that he assembled and fashioned into the costume. And Deanna Vreeland came through the Costume Institute, saw it, wanted to know who assembled this, had her, one of her minions, Paige Andre, to her, to her side. 
And he went to her office immediately. She said, who are you? And he said, Andre. And she had a big yellow legal tablet. She wrote Andre in big letters. And then she wrote under it, helper. And she said to him, you will be by my side for the entirety of this show. And so that started the beginning of what I can only call a beautiful friendship. They were simpatico. They understood one another. They loved one another. And you're right, Andre describes, he only talks about unconditional love from two people, his grandmother and Mrs. Vreeland. But what's interesting, Lois, and this is kind of bittersweet, I just read Andre's memoir, The Chiffon Trenches, as I was preparing to speak to you today. And he said he can only recall being hugged two times by his grandmother in his whole life. Really? Both times he was very young and he was sick, like with a flu or a very bad cold, and she was nurturing him and, and that was it. So his upbringing was rather repressed, not physically demonstrative as, as we might imagine. But he felt her unconditional love. Oh, he understood yes. that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And you hear this from a lot of people who migrate to the United States. You know, they say, my parents never say I love me, but they show me physically. Ocean Vuong, the novelist, has talked about this. My mother physically shows me through her body language, through the way that she cooks for me, that she loves me. But the words will never escape her lips. And that's okay. So that's a cultural thing. But I was I was really shocked to hear that. Indeed. Andre worked at Andy Warhol's interview at Women's Wear Daily and the New York Times before he took the job of fashion news director at Vogue in 1983. Five years later, Anna Wintour named him creative director and he continued to work at Vogue until 2013. It was quite a run. Gail, one of his most striking pieces was actually created for Vanity Fair. It was Scarlet in the Hood in 1996. What was the impact of that feature? <laughs> and would you describe it, please? Okay. Andre decided he would turn the narrative of Gone with the Wind on its head by having Naomi Campbell play the part, Naomi Campbell, an Afro-British model. She would play the part of Scarlett O'Hara and these luminaries of the fashion world, all white men, Gianfranco Ferre, Galliano, Marc Jacobs, uh, Manolo Blahnik would play the, the helpers, the gardener, the, you know, they would play the mammy characters. Karl Lagerfeld shot the entire spread and it was beautiful. It was laugh out loud. And Andre, you know, Andre was never the type, Lois, and he, he owns this in his memoir. He said, I was never the type to bang the drum for racial justice. And I would never say to Karl Lagerfeld, for example, if I saw a collection where there was not one person of color on the runway, I wouldn't say, Carl, what's up with that? Instead, I might say, Carl, have you thought about putting Naomi in this particular dress? She would be amazing. Or have you thought about using Rashimba for your ad when you advertise in, in the Vogue September issue? And so he was very subversive in being an advocate for equality. And I think that's fine, Lois. You know, we live in an era now where we expect people to be revolutionaries and poets and upstanding citizens and artists and the whole and and you know and politicians and we're not you know most people are really great at one thing andre was great at identifying beauty and elevating beauty and so i think it's fine that he also i understand coming from where he did that he just was not in a position to be the fierce advocate that he could be later in life for for racial equality in fashion beth ann hardison is the person who deserves all the acclaim in that regard in fashion. 
Gail, there are many people who think of fashion as frivolous and haute couture, high fashion as prohibitively expensive, sometimes ridiculous in appearance. How do you defend fashion to those who see it as superficial and snobbish? Well, I would have to say to those who see it as superficial and snobbish, I completely understand why you feel that way. The way fashion is marketed, the way that we elevate celebrity over things that really are valued, you know, that we should value lowest, like artistry, an understanding of a woman's body and what she needs to feel beautiful and confident when she leaves a room or a man, you know, whomever you're designing for, for respect for the client. Those things all kind of go by the wayside. And Vogue is partly responsible for that. You know, they celebrate the rich and the famous. And that is very, very superficial. But when you go to the atelier of somebody, like, let's say, Azadina Laya, and you see the hard work that this man puts into every scene, every bias cut, and the way that something is draped. There is real genius there. Arts ATL editor Gail O'Neill from our conversation about Andre Leon Talley earlier this year. Talley passed away in January, and yesterday would have been his 74th birthday. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name's Leif. I'm the singer and play keys in the band Rosser. Rosser's music is kind of a, a collage of sounds from the 60s to, to now. Um, you have the 70s and 80s influence in a lot of our songs. You'll have some 80s synths. It's like a cowboy walking down a, a modern city eating sushi. It can be strange sometimes, and that's what I enjoy about it. I 
I got started in music at a young age. My mom was a, a violin teacher, a Suzuki violin teacher, and I grew up playing violin and then piano, uh, joined the boy choir, went to American Boy Choir School. A lot of my experience was in the classical side. I went to North Carolina School of the Arts for opera or classical voice and uh, was a countertenor there. And then came down to Atlanta, uh, I think in 2007, and uh, started singing Atlanta Opera Chorus through work uh, outside of, of singing just ended up joining a band with people I didn't know and music I didn't know and here we are we're, we're creating rock music I never thought I would call Atlanta home. I came down on a whim. I remember the day I came down. My dad had just come out of surgery, and I had my bag packed, and I had 500 bucks. I came down to Atlanta and was just hanging out with some college friends, and I ended up staying, found a job, and it became my home after I got with friends in the Atlanta Opera, and the people here kind of kept me. Clear sky. I mean, if you listen to the lyrics, it's about skydiving, jumping out of planes. But really, what it is is a time of my life where I had fallen out of a relationship. I was pretty heartbroken and trying to figure out what I was doing with my life. And I took up skydiving as a way to figure myself out. The song kind of goes into the idea of taking the skydiving and doing it with the person that you love and the relationships that you have, the ups and downs and, and the risks you have to take when you're in a relationship and the rewarding feeling that you get when you finally, your chute opens and you can glide down safely on the ground. Kudzu Beetle is kind of a fun, quirky song where um, I'm visually seeing a family, kind of like a nuclear family, you know, eating breakfast in the morning, doing their daily routine, and, and drinking coffee, watching the news. And outside around them, through the little window over the sink, uh, they see the world crumbling around them, meteors fire starting, just, just apocalyptic things. And so the song kind of explores the idea where you're in a position, you're, you have a family, your routine, are you going to allow this to disrupt you or are you going to just carry on and eat that bologna sandwich? See that fire, it's burning all 
Atlanta definitely does have an influence on our music. What influences the music that we write can be, you know, inspired by Atlanta artists. We can come up with a cool bass line that, you know, makes me think about Run the Jewels or Killer Mike. Another influence is Dan Dixon, who's a, a musician and a producer here in Atlanta. And he produced our first album. And so you can hear, you know, if you listen to the bands that he plays in and he works with, you can hear some of those influences in our music as well. So Kutsu Beetle that we just talked about, uh, we just released that. And the one that we released prior was Love's Not Dead. So take an opportunity to go check that one out too. And of course, you know, we'll have upcoming shows here in Atlanta too. Hope to see you there. Leif Westermark from Rosser and our series Speaking of Music. More information about the band is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. we'll hear about Fernbank Museum's Halloween exhibition, Woodland Spirits, on view through November 6th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the creatives behind Kirkwood's Off the Tracks Mural Festival, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. There, you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.